Welcome once more to a quite special episode of Heretics. And, well, I suppose I don't mean once more then. Welcome once more to Heretics. And this is a quite special episode, because if it was once more, then it wouldn't be that special, would it? Um, I have been doing three episodes a week for some time. Um, we knocked that down to two for, for a little bit, and then the last few months got it back up to three. And I quite liked this balance of having Monday... Again, if you're in the UK, that is, or, or sort of this part of the world. Monday, um, it was um, 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 an episode from Heretics. Thursday, an episode from Heretics. These are quite serious, uh, interesting, hopefully profound, person-to-person, in-person interviews, usually about the culture wars, but there's going to be some more coming out about brain hemispheres and uh, weight and obesity and uh, what it means to be fat in today's world and why we have a visceral reaction to fat people, why we treat them so badly, uh, why we have that kind of urge to do so and what that is. Um, and then the Saturday, because you know, you guys know, a lot of you know, you're the audio podcast listeners, that's who I'm speaking to now. And I, I feel like I know and love you. And you're a bit different to the YouTube crowd. Some of you watch on both and watch and listen on both. But the YouTube crowd is very much, I've got to hit certain uh, feeling points. Sometimes that leads to, hmm, well, I suppose sensation and hyper- hyperbole, particularly in the um, the thumbnails and the titles, which then gives some people maybe an unfair idea because this is supposed to be maybe a centrist, uh, anti-magical thinking kind of podcast. Um but anyway, as you know, one of the YouTube channels I have, so one is Heretics, it's sort of culture wars and these kinds of things and heretical thinking. And the other was cults initially, and I was fascinated by cults and I still am, but it got, uh, you know, the ones that did well, the episodes that did well, the videos that did well, were um, celebrity-based. Because when I was talking about Scientology, I noticed that Tom Cruise did well. Um, he didn't do well, but uh, his face made the videos do well. So if I put Tom as a thumbnail and then John Travolta or whatever else it might be, those episodes did better. And the way YouTube works, and there's a fascinating aspect to audience capture here. I'm, t- I'm going to tell a story, by the way, um, and, and it's going to feature John Ronson and I don't know who else really, but people will pop in and out of it, perhaps ce- celebrities and famous people. Uh, yes. And so... Um, it did really well with uh, the celebrity stuff and it became very celebrity tabloid focused. And you can see how that happens because that's how you earn a living. And on YouTube, <clears throat> sorry, I'm not editing this. So uh, I'm, I'm just talking like literally two hours before putting it out. So we don't have time for that. Um, the point being, it ends up a lot about Meghan Markle, all the kinds of things you get in the tabloids and things like that. And I just go live now. You do a live stream. And I just look at what's in the news about the celebrities and the royals. And I give my opinions. I read out the news. And they get huge numbers. Huge numbers. But that's not something I can put out as a Saturday episode I don't I, on, on this audio podcast. I'm not sure that's what... You know, I'm not sure that there's a crossover for audio podcast listeners um, who who are listening to, I don't know, Peter Boghossian talking about plagiarism. That's an upcoming episode in faculties. And then to say, here's me angry about Meghan Markle for half an hour. So I do try and get guests on that channel as something a little bit different. I don't want to do three episodes of like heretics, heretics each week, because it's just a little bit intense, I think. Um, And I want to keep that channel as good as possible. 
Um, and I think if you try and do three a week, you end up sacrificing some of the quality. So I like the idea of Saturday being a little bit lighter or a little bit more, a little wackier, a little bit more different and whatever. And that can involve, for example, I think I'm going to be able to interview Jenna Miscavige, the niece of David Miscavige. So Scientology, he's the, the owner of the owner, the leader of Scientology. So the idea is that that's going to be one in a few weeks. Uh, sometimes I'll talk to Kinsey Schofield, who's a, a reporter on the Royals and things like that. So we will talk about the Royals. But it, I think for you guys, you know, generally it should be not something that's like me shouting at YouTube and live streams and stuff. It should be um, a, a a real interview with a real person about a an interesting topic. I think that's about right. And I don't want to give you stuff that's undervalued. Um, and then I so I've thought about all of these things. I haven't stopped thinking about YouTube. And I think as audio podcast listeners, you might actually be interested in this. And I thought I'll just talk about audience capture, um, the the market forces that move us around, and what it is or what it's like to have a sensationalist YouTube channel only because of the titles, I think, and the thumbnails. And I might start by mentioning, as, as many of you know, I have a, um, um, I, I do apologize, by the way, for any, any sort of mouth noises and things. Um, I'm, again, because we're not editing properly or anything like that, it might be all nam, 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 like, like that. Can't be as bad as that Joe Rogan episode uh, where he just ate pizza with a friend for about half an hour, just like that. Bloody hell. That was hell to listen to. Um, and I don't actually listen to much. Well, I don't really listen to many podcasts at all. I don't have the time. Who does? Who has the time to listen to podcasts? No, do keep listening to um, this podcast, please. please. Um, so I got a call from John Ronson the other day. So John Ronson was, it is, for anyone who doesn't know, he, he's, he's a brilliant writer. Um, and he's also, you know, he's made uh, audio podcasts and uh, videos and TV and lots of different things. And he was a hero of mine growing up. And he's a wonderful writer. And he wrote The Psychopath Test and Them and The Men Who Stare at Goats and So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Um, and he's great. And he and I became fairly friendly over the last couple of years, which has been such a pleasure for me. It's one of the things about having a podcast and having some, um, some what would I say, I was gonna. It's not fame, is it? It's more notoriety. It, it, but it, you do get to hang out with these people, <clears throat> and I don't know many celebrities, so I'm not going to sit here and be like name dropping. Oh, look how many celebrities I know, and I, I certainly don't think that one should uh, judge their success or their life by the number of celebrities that one knows. But at the same time, when that person happens to have been a hero of yours, then you know, fantastic. And I've got a book coming out called The Psychology of Secrets. My adventures with uh, um, what was the, what's the order? Murderers, cults, and influencers. And it talks about a lot of what I'm about to talk about now. It starts with a murder that one of my podcast listeners told me about, and I go into cults and uh, how cults use psych uh, secrets, sorry, against you, as well as uh, what it feels like to keep a secret. What happens when that secret is given up and and who we give up secrets to, how you can get secrets out of people. And I'm really excited for it to come out. It's a proper book. It's a book book. I'm actually going to have my name on a, on a book and my mum's going to be very proud and that's going to be out in April. If you're in 
not not the UK. I think it's out in September. So you might be able to find a way to get it. It's a big purple book. Maybe it's on Kindle. Maybe there's a way to get it from the UK. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but anyway, you can pre-order it now in the UK. That's the psychology of secrets. There's my sort of shout about that. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of you guys will do. I hope you do. I've just recorded uh, the audio book as well. There's something about having a hefty book in your hands. But I also know that a lot of you, you obviously listen to podcasts. So it makes sense that you would listen to the audio book. Let me tell you, that was hell. Four days, full days of reading your own book. But I thought I would hate it the whole way through. And I was pleasantly surprised to realize it's quite quite a good book. It's really good. I think it's really good anyway. And so did the fellow who was editing it. So, you know, if we think it's good. And I've heard really good things from reviewers so far. But this touches on the problem, right? Because when John called me, he was very emotional and upset with me. I should add that John had put, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. I, I think it's just a fine story to tell, isn't it? It's not a big deal. And he doesn't come out of it looking bad. And if, if for anyone who thinks he, he does, I, I, I you know, I, I don't think, I think the whole point is we, we can't judge people like this anymore. This is more about the forces, the market forces that move us. But um, John had, uh, he was, he had put his name on the book as, saying something i can't remember what but when you get a book out you have to go and like ask all of these um celebrities often you don't know them and you're like somehow trying to get them to say a thing about your book and we've got uh on the back of the book it was john ronson david Badil, uh davina mccall these are these are british famous people and will store who wrote the status game and uh, you know so john said to me he was very upset with me because he'd seen my videos, which are also audio podcasts that you guys have listened to, with Graham Linehan, and um, it just, just occurred to me that, that I shouldn't really go into this, because I, I know he, he's very careful. Uh, Kelly J. Keen. Anyway, he was really nice about it, but really emotional, because he had a very public fallout with Graham. So that's I'm not telling you anything that's not already known. Uh, it, it appears that they were friends, they had a fallout or whatever. Um, and he said to me, you know, it's not what you said, because you as you guys know, listening, I don't generally say anything very out there. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not afraid to say quite obvious things that I think are right and good that that could get a lot of people in trouble. I, I think the key example I keep stressing, and I, sorry to labor on it, but uh, or labor it, uh, that you know the idea this 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 uh, repeated slogan of trans women are women I just think is is a is a typical example of something that is just ideologically driven and involves magical thinking and is not right or proper. But you're not going to hear me saying, "Well, they've all got fetishes and they're all just a bunch of paedophiles and they're all this and that." Some of the way that Kelly J Keen, who who also spoke brilliantly in many other respects, some of the ways that she spoke did feel a bit similar to that. And the point was that I hadn't pushed back. But the other point was that I pushed her and her video on my channel on Twitter and said, oh, what a brilliant speaker and all this kind of thing. And then I think John's right, by the way. Um, and it hurt. It was really, really painful because firstly, he's my, you know, if he's whoever you look up to, if it's your Dave, David Bowie or JK Rowling or Ricky Gervais or whoever it is, he's my that thing. You know, John was a big reason I got into this. So anything that that person says, you're liable to be 
uh, far more emotional about it and sensitive. Uh, but also it's that old thing that I'm sure you all recognize when you think somebody's actually right. It's incredibly painful. It's not easy to admit that to oneself, um, and it's not hard to hear these kinds of things. But also, I'm you know I'm thinking in this moment. Okay, well, John, John is someone I look up to so much, and and what a pleasure that I'm even I've gotten to a point in my career that I'm even able to have a phone call with this man, and that he's invested in what I'm doing and saying online. However, you know he wanted his name off the book, and you know fair enough. Uh, I understand that. Uh, he doesn't, and and it's something. It's a difficult thing to ask people. It's a difficult thing, and I explained. Listen, the book doesn't really venture into culture wars. Yes, there are explanations about people going too far one way or another, and how that can happen, and the cultish ideologies that we all engage in. There are bits about the woke and the alt right and this and that, but it doesn't take a side. It's a, it's a book that is about secrets and psychology and tells some of the maddest stories that I've ever come across. Um, particularly the afternoon I spent with a 25-year-old female paedophile. There's a whole chapter about how strange that was. Um, but John's right that, you know, and, and it wasn't a cowardly thing. Thing I think it was. this was a an ideological thing for him. This was a an important thing for him because he didn't agree with what I was doing and therefore didn't want to put his name on it. And I think he's right. Um, so I sort of endeavoured at that point. I was like, okay, you know, he, he raises a good point. But I still want to have quite extreme people on my podcast because, quite frankly, uh, it's boring otherwise. It's boring. Uh, I, I just don't think there's any point in talking, particularly when people are self-policing themselves. So I want to hear people who really have strong opinions and talk with them. But I think John's point, rightly so, was that I need to push back. And unfortunately, you know, I could also put some nuance in the titles on YouTube, but I'm just not going to do that because I've tried that before. And it's not the difference between 200,000 views and 190,000 views. It's the difference between 200,000 and 1,000 views. So these episodes I put out for Heretics, just to sort of give you guys a picture, um, they cost 700, 800 pounds an episode to produce. And we're doing it like bare bones right now. I mean, we do it in this beautiful warehouse that I have to book for the whole day. I get a guy who's who's fantastic and films. Um, <clears throat> we've got editors, an editor, uh, Gonzalo, who's brilliant and lovely. Uh, I've got a guest booker. We've got a three-camera setup that's all 4K and all of these things. So it does cost seven, eight hundred pounds, maybe a thousand pounds sometimes. Sometimes I've got to pay for people to come over from another country, stuff like that. The recent episode with Yasmin Mohammed, for example, she's not living in the UK. So it all costs a lot of money. Um, and then some of the episodes I've put out on YouTube and through the audio podcast have made in total around 60 or 70 pounds. That's not after getting my money back. That's that's a loss. So you make a loss. And this is a problem, and I, John ended up coming to um, Bristol to have lunch with me, which was really nice, and we talked it all out, and I think he was really interested potentially for a future project or something like that, um, he didn't say. But we had a nice, like, well, coffee or whatever, and we chatted this all out, and I explained to him what like most people don't know. So firstly, there are a lot of comments who go, oh, this is clickbait, or you know, why are you so obsessed with, back when I was doing the Tom Cruise stuff, why are you so obsessed with Tom Cruise? And it would be like, well, I'm not, but but you guys are, because I can see the views, and it's 300,000, 500,000, sometimes a million views 
Whereas when he wasn't in the picture, when he wasn't there, you're talking like 1,000 views. So that is the difference between like 20 pounds and several thousand pounds. It's the difference between able being able to actually do this for a living and doing it as a hobby. And when you're in your mid-30s and you've got bills to pay and mortgages and things, you go, ah, I'm not going to change who I am in my episodes. I'm not going to change me. I'm not going to stop saying, you know, I'm not going to say things I don't believe or anything like that. But maybe those titles can be spruced up a bit. They can be a little bit more um, binary in their thinking. Again, you've got a small space, 50 characters or less you're supposed to do it in. And you're supposed to have one very specific idea. For anyone who's starting a YouTube channel, this is something you need to know. A lot of people make that mistake of doing that kind of colon in the middle of a sentence. They'll say like, Scientology's big problem, colon, when Tom Cruise went too far, something like that. The colon, get rid of it. You don't, you don't need, you know, you've got 50 characters. It's a small title. You don't need two clauses. It just, it's not, um, it's not sort of one directional. I don't mean the band enough. You, you need to be just like, this is the thing that was said. To, or, or like, Tom Cruise, leave Scientology. That's it. None of this sort of mixing and putting different bits together and the stuff you'd have in a book, fine. It's not going to work for you on YouTube. I don't really know for an audio podcast. I think I think it's the same as, as YouTube in, a, in some respects. I think it's, you know, people click on a, a very... Same with businesses. If you've got a business, you want one clear, simple idea. You can't be going all over the place and nuancing it. I've made a verb of to nuance. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we talked all of this out, and 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 you know, it's a it's a predicament, and a lot of people would blame the algorithm of YouTube, right? That doesn't quite do it, unfortunately. Yes, it's something that enables us to act in a sensationalist way, because if you think that I'm doing this, every single YouTuber is doing it. YouTube, I believe, is the biggest distributor in the world by probably by some distance of video content. Every single YouTuber on there who has any kind of success is is doing that. So YouTube enables something, but what it's enabling, in my opinion, is basic human psychology. It's allowing the market to decide. It's democracy. There's no gatekeepers like on the TV channels. It's no um, BBC deciding who gets to be on their channels and things like that. You do it. You put it out there, and people decide if they want to watch. If lots of people click on it, then YouTube presents it to more people, giving them the opportunity to click on it, and so on. And you're competing on the screen with your thumbnail and title, the thumbnail being the picture above the title, with like 20 other videos by people who have also tried their hardest to make their thumbnail and title as alluring as possible. So you get competitive, as you can imagine. If a couple of your videos do badly in a row, like two or three videos start don't do as well, let's say you've been getting 100,000 views, three or four videos in a row, or like you've been used to that for, for maybe for a year, and then one gets 20,000, and the next gets 15, and then 20, and then 10, or whatever. What's happening there is that a lot of your regulars are not clicking. They didn't like it. They didn't like what you put out there. And so YouTube didn't spread it as far. And the second time, the same, and the third time. And then that means there's been two or three videos by this point that your core subscribers have decided not to click on. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. So what YouTube does is that fourth or fifth video it stops showing it to most of your core subscribers. So you get into a, a rut and you basically can't get out of it. It becomes harder and harder with every passing video to get out of it. So you see all these YouTubers who come up and you know these, these videos, they come on and say they've had a bit of a breakdown. Like, oh, I can't, I'm having a breakdown, I'm so stressed. I tend to, when that happens, I check their stats. <clears throat> and inevitably, they've been doing really, really badly recently and they've gotten into that rut and it's essentially gambling we are up at four in the morning refreshing the stream the 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 screen uh, analytics seeing oh gosh the the click-through rate's gone down people aren't clicking the video as much as they as they were do i need to change the title what's going on it is mad the extent to which it takes over your life oh gosh so you do end up sort of on this <clears throat> what would you say a hamster wheel of market forces just constantly having to produce content on your own usually of course you have a team of a few people but you're the one doing the bulk of it um yeah i, I think that's that's probably fair and you know your the final box stops with you you're the one who gets threatened uh with lawsuits which has happened a few times including one um a couple of days ago that i don't want to go into well i do want to go into actually but i worry about going into but just some terrible terrible person who who 
you might know of. But whatever. Um, and it's very, very stressful. That said, in a good month, you earn a lot of money. Again, that the reason I, I think some of you audio listeners... I, I would hate for you ever to feel left behind because you guys were my bre- bread and butter. That's what I started with was the audio. And I love it because I think I can be a little bit more intellectual and uh, less sensational with the audio podcast listeners, which is what I always wanted. So I love and respect you guys so much. And it must be frustrating sometimes because you're hearing a lot about YouTube and things like that. The problem is the revenue from YouTube is probably 90 to 10, 90% or maybe more. Oh, uh, maybe 90 to 10 um, depending on the month. So you rely totally on that uh, YouTube revenue, unless the audio podcast grows much larger. I mean, I look at my friend Jordan Harbinger. He's got like, I don't know how many actually. I have no idea, but it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of listens each episode. It's insane. So he's, you know, fine with his audio podcast, it seems. Um, anyway, so that was really upsetting, uh, but a reality check. And I think it has pushed me. There's some episodes coming out soon with people who are not as extreme as Kelly, for example, who I don't, I don't mean to like throw her out, you know, or, or dig her out or whatever, because I invited her on. I didn't push back. And I think she says a lot of really interesting and, and correct things. But the parts where I disagreed, I probably needed to push back a little bit or the parts where I thought, oh, I sort of agree, but I, you know, that's not quite fair. I needed to push back. So, so from now on, I will. I, I, I had a, a good couple of experiments with that uh, in episodes I've since filmed, which will come out in the next few weeks, such as with Stella O'Malley. And it's funny, I was always scared to push back. I don't know what it is. Maybe I, I, I'm scared of the uh, of that person not liking me or of feeling like I've made them come out to this place to do in the studio and you know, they suddenly realize I'm this horrible guy who's pushing back on what they're saying and, and disagreeing with them. Uh, and I found that hard. But I did push back a few times with Stella O'Malley, who who is a uh, children's therapist who herself thought she was a boy when she was younger and then sort of grew out of that and, and doesn't want children to become trans or, or whatever. I, don't, I hope I'm not, you know, um, selling her short or whatever. That's what she's, that's her thing. And I, I think she's fantastic. And she is very uh, subtle and nuanced and stuff. But sometimes when she said things, I said, hang on, hang on. And she agreed and took it well. And I thought, ah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So it's something I'm going to definitely try and do a lot more. Um, and then another thing is, yeah, maybe on Twitter I can try and stay out of some of the gruesome tribal fights a little bit more. Um, luckily with the book, by the way, so John had to pull out, and I understand, and we're still friends and everything's fine, but Will Storr, who I love as well, and another hero of mine who wrote the status game, he put one saying Andrew is the next John Ronson so either way John's on the book and for those who know who John is you'll know how big of a deal that is because uh, I mean I'm a big John Ronson fan so if I go into a bookshop and I see the words John Ronson or the next John Ronson I'm buying that book and I think a lot of people feel the same so thank you Will Storr thank you John Ronson for being John Ronson and you know, wonderful and all's well that ends well. And that book's coming out soon. And like I say, it's it's just a crazy mad book of crazy stories of of journalism, gonzo journalism, what I what I really, really enjoyed doing. So that's coming out soon. Um but yeah, I think I also wanted to talk about that issue. About okay, so 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 who is right and wrong? And what is happening to us as people that is sort of tearing us apart and moving us in such different directions and I wonder if 
the last few years that I've spent interviewing people in cults, and you guys often listening to those about cults, if that can inform us at all about what's going on. Um, a group of people I've encountered recently, because you, you guys know I'm, I'm very sort of, I guess I'm anti-woke, and I hate saying the word woke because people start saying, you don't even know what that means, that originated in blah, blah, and it's like, yeah, I, I know, I know the history. I know the history, and I know how it was co-opted. Um, is that a word, co-opted? Yeah, of course it is, isn't it? Co-opted. To make someone a member through the choice of the present members, co-opted onto the committee last June. I don't think it's the word I'm looking for, is it? Someone will tell me, or maybe it is, integrated or whatever. I don't know. It doesn't matter, because I think you guys get what I'm trying to say anyway. Um, where the word woke comes from and all of these things. And I think it was taken on by people who think that they have the answers. And I was having an interesting debate today, just by email actually, with uh, Travis Brown, the recent recent guest. And he's a really smart guy and very nuanced and very sort of centrist and in the middle of things. And we had this little debate. I talked about a group that I've discovered on Twitter called the Gender Critical Ultras. And although I was wound up by like the left-wing woke people and stuff like that, I found myself just as wound up by the Gender Critical Ultras. Uh, not all of them, of course. Um, but I think this was something I did push back on with Kelly J. Keane when I was talking to her. I said to her, wouldn't you win more people over if you spoke in softer terms, in more, let's say, to, to borrow a word they use, you know, inclusive words? Um, and she said, no, look at Trump, look at Farage, Nigel Farage with the Brexit stuff. That's not how you win things. And she had a point. But I thought about this afterwards and I thought, well, yeah, but those aren't people I aspire to. Those aren't people that I think anyone should aspire to. And I don't think they're people who have brought the world together. I think they've potentially caused more division, though they did win. So I respect that point as well. It's a complicated one. But I started to see with the gender critical ultras exactly the same pattern or patterns that I see with the woke left. And so I described them, I'll explain what those are, but I described them to Travis in the email as uh, the woke right. And it's something that's being said more and more. And I hope he doesn't, these were private emails, but I really don't think he'll mind because these are just, I don't know, he didn't say anything. <laughs> I think that's fine. He was just talking about whatever. Um, let's see. So what did he say? I'm just trying to find, why is it so hard? Like It's all up and down in the, in the thing. He, oh, right. So I talked about the white work, right? And he said, I really hope he doesn't mind me saying this. I think he won't mind. It's all stuff he'd say on a, on a video. He said, I think woke right is an absurd term. The far right is identitarian and authoritarian, but they aren't awakened to anything. I think and hope that term won't catch on. So that's interesting that, that for Travis, what, what woke means is being awakened. So yes, the far right shares with the woke left the identitarian part, like it's all about our identity and whoever's with us is with us and against us is against us, and the authoritarian side, which is even though people said things that have nothing to do with me or maybe something to do with me, but I wasn't even in the room or whatever, I want to clamp down on their ability to say it and I'm going to become incredibly abusive and self-righteous in stopping other people from expressing those views. So that exists on the far right, as as Travis says, and um, 
and the far left, or, or the, the woke left, I should say, because there certainly still exists a left that is just basically the old-fashioned liberal left, not the authoritarian one. I replied, tell that about the awakened thing, like they're not awakened. Tell that to the peaked ultras. Because ultra ultra gender criticals, and just to, just to explain, gender criticals are people who are on the other side to the trans rights activists. These are people who say, hey, you know, I don't believe a, a man is can be a woman and vice versa. In that respect, I, despite not liking labels, am very much entrenched in the in the uh, gender critical side like i'm absolutely you know every every cell of my body would be gender critical in that respect but i think where i differ to to these people is i don't, I don't sort of identify i try not to uh, as this kind of gender critical person uh i don't feel like they're my tribe and i don't feel like i am peaked uh for peaked read red pilled um but I'll get onto that in a second as well. So <laughs> these are the ultras, and they feel very much. These are, I think, often right-wing, and uh, they feel like they have the answer, and they've been peaked. They've found the truth, which is that, like, do you realize how bad a lot of the trans stuff is for children and so and so? A lot of stuff that I have sympathy with. Anyway, Travis was going, but yeah, but some they, they often claim they're on the left, these people who are peaked gender criticals. And he said, woke is synonymous with progressive for a reason. He said, he said he thinks the word will lose all meaning if used for anything else. He said he's not defending the right, but he's just particular about words. And I get that. I think that's a really intriguing point. Like, uh, if we use woke for everything, how do you define the specific woke left? Who are they? Who who are these people? And then, by the way, some people often message and say, "What does woke mean?" And and oh, it means it seems to mean different things to different people depending on what side you're on. But to me, it means uh, well, identitarian. You know, this this is my group, and I can't speak to anyone else, and so on. Authoritarian. I'm going to control your words and things. But awakened, as in I'm more alert to social just injustices than you are, and I think that they go in so hard and without any understanding for other people uh, that they actually make things considerably worse worse that's my that's just my opinion on it um and then i thought okay so are the gender ultras gender critical ultras on the left then i can't really tell it seems like a big mix a lot of them say things that seem quite right enough and maybe left and right isn't even the right way to look at it but then i said well why don't we swap gender critical ultras let's look at incels who are involuntary involuntary celibates which you know who often are linked to far right groups who are unable to, to get girlfriends and so hate women. I, you know, those are the extremes of it. Uh, I, I think there is also a, a, a maybe a moderate side of incel culture. I wouldn't want to throw everyone in with one word, but the the, the sort of in, the incels, the scary incels, the extreme incels, the far right incels. They talk of being red pilled. That's the red pill in the matrix that makes you wake up to the world. So my point. Then to Travis was like, well, hang on, like you say they're not awakened. It's just the woke are awakened on the left. But I've seen that, you know, whatever side they're on, the gender critical ultras also say they are peaked. And the incels who are often linked to the far right are red pilled. And I said, all cults across the spectrum claim they are awakened. They all believe they have the truth, are more righteous than those outside their cult, and that it is their duty to hold the line. That's a very popular phrase with the gender critical ultras and presume the worst of anyone who questions them 
to kick out anyone who commits wrong thought or even innocuously or inadvertently aligns or associates themselves with wrong people. I wrote, admittedly, admittedly, woke is a particular variety on the left that is supposed to be progressive. And I understand why you wouldn't want to dilute that word and have it refer to other things. But I find the opposite strategy just as alluring by using it for the right and for all these high control, oppressive groups. We hold a mirror up to all fanatical, magical thinkers. Obviously, they'll never see it. But still, it's why I hate when the right call the woke left snowflakes because that plays their game. They want to be seen as morally pure, high-empathy crusaders. In actual fact, they're closed-minded bigots, little different from the right, aside from a different selection of slogans and causes. So that's how I feel about, I guess, not only what we call the woke left, but the right as well, and just... I'm not saying that you, you, you have to be on the fence about things, I think what I am calling for is some humility and the realization that if you're in a in a sort of cult, it can be really exciting to jump on someone who says the wrong words. I think there's a good reason for that. And I think it goes back to our evolutionary biology. I think it made sense in each tribe and community over the millennia and centuries uh, to have policing in our cults, to have uh, groups of people who wanted to stop others from acting out in strange and difficult ways that would harm the rest of the group. Because if you didn't have those people who policed, the the, the tribe couldn't survive. You'd have psychopaths in the cult just killing people, and there'd be no one with an urge to police. Now, I'm a believer in determinism, um, and I don't want to go too far into that kind of philosophy, because it all, gets all a bit teenage and, you know, my green is your green, is it? Or, you know, do we see the same color and that kind of thing? But determinism suggests that we are basically machines. And a lot of people disagree with that. And there are different arguments, right? And you can say we're not exactly like machines or some say we're very different from machines. But the way I see it is that we're quite similar. We've got this equipment. It's physical. It's of the universe. It's atoms and things like that. And that we do what what we're sort of made or written to do almost, what, what, what the script tells us to do. The script is our brains and our genes, and you can't really control that. You feel like you're controlling things, but actually you're not really doing that. This is an idea we really don't like, and I had a bit of a fallout with a friend recently because we got heated discussing it, this whole determinism thing, because I was trying to say, and it's something that Alex O'Connor recently said on this show, that there's no truly moral altruistic act that and i think by the way i know this gets into the weeds of the philosophy a little bit but i think this is actually quite relevant to to cults and to extreme ideologies on the left and the right um this is difficult for us to take on uh, in our minds as a thought because we like to think that not only are we nice but we're nicer than other people that we, i mean that's part of the self-policing system uh if you felt good by feeling like you were doing good then you were more likely to do good and so on. If, however, like I'm saying, there's just a script in your head that is making you do good by making you feel certain ways. Um, like if you see a a dying dog, uh, or a dog's about to die, or about to drown, you don't save it because you're. This is my my opinion. Because you're a good person, 
You save it because something about your nervous system, something in your brain, is making it painful. Not just painful, uh, excruciating. If you're anything like me and most people, I think, excruciating to see that dog suffer or to see that other human being suffer in a really horrible way. It actually becomes impossible to live in such a way. So you end up trying to save that person, maybe at the risk of your own life, but you weigh, you weigh it up and you weigh up the risk of your own life as less difficult than just sitting there and taking the pain of watching that person. It almost physically hurts. That's what empathy is. But empathy then, in that case, is not something we should be necessarily so proud of. You just either have it or you don't. And whether you have it is about what society you grew up in. If you grew up in certain cultures, you'd probably eat horse or you might eat dog, right? And then you'd see dogs being farmed and all that kind of thing, and you, uh, you wouldn't feel empathy. You just wouldn't. And if, you know, if there's ever a, a case to, to show you know, exactly that, to show why that is uh, or to show why that's right, just, just the way that, you know, firstly, I've seen loads of videos now of pigs that are kept as pets and they act maybe not quite as cuddly as dogs, but they act like pets. I, I know they're not domesticated in that, in that same way, but they run around, they wag their tails, they jump up on their owners and all that kind of thing. The stuff that they go through is horrific and we just don't have empathy. We don't care. If you grew up in the 1800s, 1700s in the US, you might have had a slave. And you might have been incredibly empathetic about all sorts of different things. Why wouldn't you be? This wasn't a country just of psychopaths. Germany in the 1930s wasn't just a country that happened to have all the world's psychopaths. Psychopaths. It's just that they grew up in a culture that valued certain things. And then so when you self-policed, and that's what your empathy does, it makes sure you don't do things that's going to get you in trouble which is a sad way of looking at it because it's i guess it's an ego egotistical way of looking at it you know like we we just do things because we're selfish um but people did see Jews and black people and romany people as subhuman and they didn't feel sorry for them some did some did and and those people had different reasons and different upbringings and different or you know it's so complicated for whatever reason when they looked at a jew or a black person or whatever being killed by the nazis it hurt those people and so they intervened until it stopped hurting to different extents depending on the person um for years now i've been looking into cults and time and time again, I'm seeing people are joining these cults to feel good about themselves, to feel like they've discovered a true truth. And it's amazing when you look at it and you see in Hasidic Judaism, in extreme Islam, in Scientology, whatever, you see how this is such a powerful emotion, this feeling that you're better than everyone, that it overrides paternal love. They just like sell their kids. They kill their kids. They honor kill their kids. They um, don't show love to their kids because their new doctrine says so. It's so powerful, the feeling of feeling good and better than other people, that it overrides what we think is the most powerful natural bond, which is that between a parent and a child. That's how strong this is. That's why we mustn't underestimate it and why if we want to stay clear of being it's truly ideological and extreme. You have to always keep in mind at the back of your head that whatever I think is right, firstly, there is no right. It changes through the years. It was right to keep a slave. It was right to uh, for the Nazis to kill the Jews in those times. 
for most people. And if you're sitting there going, yes, yes, but you know those things were obviously wrong. And by the way, I agree they were obviously wrong by my moral standards. But if you're thinking, but I have stumbled across the true morality. I mean, just think of, of what you would think of people and their morality even 20 years ago, before Me Too, the, the way that people spoke of and spoke to women, for example. Women didn't have the vote you know, 70 years ago, or I don't know how many years ago. Civil rights movement, how black people were treated. So even 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, let alone hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, think how different their morals were to yours. But you think that you got it right this time? You think you won't be judged in 20 years? People are always saying, oh, you're on the wrong side of history. But no one's able to predict that. It's just such a... Anyone who says that, I immediately think, right, you're an ideologue. You're an ideologue and you don't know what you're talking about. It's like I've been watching this um, reality show, the, 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 the Traitors. And on the traitors, you got to vote. You got to vote for who you think the traitors are. It's as simple as that. And the the number of people who, at the beginning, say, you know, the thing about me is, um, I'm incredibly perceptive, and I know if people are lying to me. It's like they get it so utterly wrong. And I'm just amazed because they're talking to TV cameras. They know that loads of people are going to watch this, and they still are so sure. And it feels like with these people, no matter how many times they must have been wrong over a lifetime, they still don't have the humility. They'll just continually, they could live for 10,000 years and would never learn from their mistakes because presumably these people must have been wrong a million times already in their lives. Everyone is. But they've never learned that and they still go in and go, and the things they say, well, the thing is I'm actually a law student so I'm very good at, at picking out liars. Or I'm a magician so I, I know when people are lying. Nobody knows when people are lying. Even top professionals, CIA agents, don't get difficult liars. They don't get them right. Uh, more often than the rest of us. That's in my book, The Psychology of Secrets. They just don't. Um, there are tells, there are things that you know experts are, are, are taught to look out for, but they really don't do much better than the rest of us. You can't tell when people are lying, and then you get these absolute plonkers who go in and say, I can tell who's lying here. No, you can't. And similarly, you definitely can't tell how the future, people in the future, are going to look back on us. And by the way, does anyone stop to think when you go like, oh, history will smile on me kindly or history, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll look better in history and whatever. Well, who are these people in, in the future? There's a, there's a fallacy here. There's an assumption that people in the future are, are going to be even more morally righteous, that morality is some sort of objective goal towards which we strive and get closer with each year. In a hundred years, they might be, have slavery again. You know, they might be rounding up minorities and putting them in gas chambers. We have no idea. What about in a thousand years, 10,000 years? How will they look back on us? And we're sitting here saying, oh, yeah, history will agree with me. Jesus. To have that kind of confidence, it ju like I say, it just makes me think, right, you're more susceptible for falling into a cult. That's what I think about that. And anyway, the point I was making about determinism and, and having to, you know, if almost like human nature made things feel good so that we did them. There was that amazing experiment with the, the rats who pushed a button that directly uh, gave them a good feeling in their heads, dopamine rush or whatever it was. And they just pushed that button over and over again and neglected to eat because it wasn't really about eating for them. It was about feeling good. And eating activates the feeling good feeling in your brain. 
well, why would you need to activate it if you're getting it directly from source? They were just getting this good feeling by pushing this button. So they kept on pushing it and died of starvation. Now, what that tells me, what that tells us, is that hunger is your body making you feel bad because it knows it needs food. And then and enjoying food, well, that's your body feeling good, your brain feeling good, and it's rewarding you for doing the thing that's going to keep it alive. The problem here is then we needed self-policing. We needed policing in groups, and we still do need police, of course. You know, we need uh, not only police in the form of actual police. I know some people want to defund them, but we need them because people murder other people and so on and so forth. But we also do need, as much as I, you know, get annoyed by it, we do need people to be going like, hang on, mate, that was a bit much. You didn't break the law, and you don't have your speech taken away from you and your platform taken away from you, and we're not going to arrest you. However, what you said was distasteful. And you shouldn't. You should not be rewarded by the society and group for saying it. And we're going to keep you in line. I'm very, you know, I don't like that. It sounds all a bit Stasi, but it's, it's, you know, you need a bit of it. You need a tiny bit of it at least. Like some people policing you, just to an extent. Some people going, hang on, you can't just say that. Doesn't like I said. It doesn't mean you put them in prison ever for speech. That's my opinion. But for someone to say, hey, I, I found that distasteful. You're my friends, and I don't. I don't want to be out with you if you're going to say those horrible racist things to, to people from minorities, and you know that kind of thing. I think that's quite necessary. Um, and if a society, if a tribe needs to have some people policing, well, and here's the crux of it: it needs to feel really good to police. And there are several reasons it feels good to police people, and 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 most prominently, just the fact that it it implies immediately that you are good and that you know what good is because you're already there and you're saying to other people, I want to bring you up to my level of righteousness. Like I say, a little bit of that in a, in a, in a tribe is not, not necessarily a bad thing, a little bit of that. But it feels really good, uh, apparently, across an entire culture to police people. I'm constantly sent these like these very patronizing messages and comments and things, particularly on YouTube, but on Instagram and Twitter and things like that, where they say, oh, Andrew, you're better than this. I find that of all the criticisms I get, I find that particularly insidious and patronizing and mean. And the reason for that is, again, if you're saying to someone that they are better than this, the implication is that you know what better is, that better is objective. And you're aware and you're there because you are awake to it or you are peaked or you are red-pilled and you understand what good is and what better is and that this lowly person who you found on YouTube or Twitter who's having these conversations is currently not good and you're policing that person. And that person in your eyes could be an idiot but often it's presumed they're a liar. And that goes back to Hanlon's razor, something that I try to live by. Let's see if I can read that out. It's an adage or rule of thumb that states, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. So I love that. And I think stupidity is not exactly the, 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 the perfect word there, but, but fine. Um, and I try to do that as much as possible. If somebody misunderstands me, if somebody criticizes me, or if somebody gets something wrong, I try first to think, oh, they just got it wrong. I don't really think, oh, they are stupid. But I think, now nah, they didn't quite get it, or they just don't have the same 
life values as I have. But I find there are a lot of people, and I'm sure you've encountered these people in your lives, who instantly go for lying. You're lying. You're malicious, that is what they're saying. Uh, and that tends to be the assumption. So when I get those emails and comments and things, Andrew, you're better than this, often they will say something else which will imply you're lying to your viewers, you're this, you're that. And there's just so many assumptions and so many prejudices. And what I think is going on is that they are so in that moment high off of the drug of feeling better than other people because, as I, as I was saying, because we evolved for it, because evolution made it feel good to be the good one. I mean, another reason for that is the status game and the fact that if you are perceived by others to be virtuous, that you will get more of the spoils, you'll get more of the food and shelter and things like that. It's a good way to climb status ranks by looking like a really good person. And when you combine that with that good feeling from policing other people, uh, yeah, people are just like are totally high off of that feeling. And it means they're unable then, they're emotional from it, their brains and their bodies are telling them with every every ounce of, of strength and every ounce of mind that they are better than this person, that this person is malicious, malevolent, is lying to them and must be kicked out of the tribe. And obviously that worked um, over many years in tribes and things because if somebody was acting like a psychopath, uh, they were kicked out. But I'm sure as well, not just psychopaths, I'm sure if people were like, you know, if you had a tribe of 50 people and 49 of them were saying, hey, let's walk this way, but one of them was like, what do you mean that way? That's not where God is. We need to walk the other way or whatever and constantly doing that. Well, you know, it made sense to kick that person out because that person's going to cause trouble for your tribe. And so it felt good. Uh, the tribes that did better and passed on their genes were ones filled with people who felt better about policing and telling others that if they don't have the same exact philosophy as them, they are out. So that's now quite like with many evolutionary issues, that's quite a difficult issue for us to deal with in today's modern society. Still, we do need some form of policing, but we have a tribe of basically 8 billion now, or 7 billion, I'm not sure, maybe 8. And that's a really difficult thing to deal with, particularly with the internet and particularly with the ability to not even, because at least in a tribe in real life, you'd be a little concerned. You might hold back a little bit because anything you say to someone, they might come back at you. And your place in that tribe was then uh, up for grabs or or uh, potentially lost. But man, today, anonymously on Twitter, or, you know, there's no, there's no drawback. You might as well just go around policing. And anyway, you get into a purity spiral. And a purity spiral is what is happening in the woke. It is what is happening in the uh, gender, what are they called? Gender critical ultras, the incels, football groups. If you're a Tottenham fan or whatever it might be on Twitter, but you come out with the wrong opinion uh, about your team, people go bananas. They kick you out. And so then you are incentivized to hold the line and to hold the same opinions as everybody else. And it's a problem. And I'm seeing that as a problem in the gender-critical ultras at the moment. Um, just the fact, I mean, I got piled on by them the other day just because I had um, platformed 
Katie John Went, who is a trans person. So they all said to me these things like, oh, great, you had a bloke with his who's got a fetish with his fake tits and stuff like that and uh, all this and, and you think you're helping, do you? And they went mad. And one guy in particular, and I, I don't even, you know, some anonymous man, I think he calls himself Michael, uh, just some bloke, he kept writing, oh, look, how typical uh, a bloke is uh, centering himself in a woman's issue. And I'm sitting there staring at a picture of a guy called Michael having a go and putting himself at the centre of an issue. And by he does this by telling me that I'm a man putting myself in a... You know, and he couldn't see the hypocrisy there because that is a person who I think has been ideologically captured. And so nothing means anything anymore. He's getting a buzz out of policing me. He's getting a buzz out of the virtue that he's getting from his fellow gender uh, critical ultras. He's holding the line, which is not accepting anybody who dares to speak to somebody else slightly on the other side. Um, and he's improving his status within that group. And quickly, a lot of his people gathered around him and none of them could see the irony in a man coming out and shouting at another man for trying to center themselves in a woman's space. And when I mentioned that, he said, oh, well, I've been doing this for years. You're just a newbie. So again, that feeling of like, I'm more entrenched in this cult. I'm further up in it. We see that in Scientology with, with each operating Thetan level. We see how uh, those at the higher levels get more respect and they also get better access to knowledge about the cult and uh, have more freedoms and liberties and all sorts of things. Again, it's a very natural thing. You're proving your allegiance to the ideology um, and those around you will back you up as long as you continue to toe the line. Well, this is really worrying. It's it's really pretty crazy. And I think that um, Travis Brown is probably right that it's not it's not ideal to call those people woke who are maybe on the right, maybe on the left, I'm not entirely sure, uh, or incels who are, you know, red-pilled or whatever to call them woke. I guess they're authoritarian, identitarian. And then we have to wonder, you know, the, the one thing that I think we can try and do is remember how wrong we must be about so much and, and to try and be humble. But then how boring is that? Right? How boring is that to just sit there and always go, well, I don't know. You know, maybe we need slightly psychopathic people on the left and right who are too given to their emotions, who are not nuanced. Maybe they're the ones who change things. When John Ronson put it to me that, oh, no, that's not, that's not the case. And, you know, I think we need to talk to people and be more open and whatever. I said, well, you know, the suffragettes, the most famous moment of the suffragettes was a woman who threw herself in front of a horse. This is not a you know subtle, nuanced person. There was a great book by Helen Lewis called um, 12 Difficult, or Just Difficult Women, I think it was called, um, showing that like these people are, you know, if you're going to be someone who actually changes things, then you might have a difficult personality. I'm not, I, I like to think that I'm nuanced. Well, I'm not changing things. I'm not out in the street protesting and trying to change laws and things like that. So maybe the bad side of the nuanced people is that we don't get things done. And then maybe we need sort of these mad culty people on the left and on the right who actually do make change. And, and, and Or maybe if both of those just went away, all of us nuanced people in the middle could just get on with life. Even calling myself nuanced, I mean, I, I, as I, I sort of cringe as I say it because I'm aware that 
I'm only nuanced by my own point of view. I think. I mean, there are, there are um, threads about me on uh, Mumsnet all having a go at me from the right, and there are threads about me on Reddit from the left all saying I'm a this phobe and a that phobe and a bigger and all those. I mean, they certainly wouldn't think that I'm nuanced. So maybe there is, you know, it's all just subjective. Gosh. Well, that's what I think about everything in the world right now. And I have no idea. I, I hope this was like an interesting episode. There must be at least a certain percentage who uh, turned it off after 10 minutes and went, oh, shut up. And then another percentage of you guys who, like you're in a car or you don't have another audio or you downloaded this just for the plane and now you can't get something else and you're like, oh, just leave it on and sort of half fall asleep maybe. But maybe a small percentage quite liked this. I know that a lot of podcasters just talk for an hour sometimes. Sometimes all of their episodes are like this. They just sort of pick a subject and just riff. Some people might write down what they're saying, but I think I find it much more enjoyable to just sort of go and, and see where it's going to take me. I didn't really know. Um, and maybe, look, if it gets a good reaction, if you guys like this kind of thing, maybe I can do it next time as well, or, or at least a few, you know, every now and then on a Saturday just give my thoughts about what's going on in the world. Um, talk a lot. That can be easier sometimes than uh, doing live interviews with people and finding people to come on, on on the on the YouTube and all those kinds of things. This feels a bit more intimate and nicer. I hope you'll share this with uh, other people. Maybe this was a nice look into uh, cults and ideologies and politics from the perspective of Maybe the fairly unique perspective of a sort of big, if I might call myself that, YouTuber who's experienced all kinds of uh, suings and uh, celebrities backing away and uh, a lot of madness. It's bloody stressful, I'll tell you that. But, you know, I guarantee that 90% of you are also thinking, hey, my job's pretty stressful too. So uh, fair play to you. But please do share this around, share this podcast uh, to, with people heretics that's the only way with the audio podcast it's so annoying because youtube it puts it out there i don't know why apple don't have a system like that so it can only get more people listening to it if they search for andrew old heretics or whatever well why would they search they don't know who i am so the only way is word of mouth anyway so please do um send that out and and like i say uh, my book the bike the, the bookology the psychology of secrets my adventures with murderers cults and influencers is available to pre-order. And I gather that if you all pre-order it before it comes out, that all of those orders count towards sales of the book in its first week, which then get it onto the bestseller lists. So that could be huge. Um, so go and have a look. If you're outside the UK, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I asked my publisher what I should say to you people. And he was like, I think they can get it somewhere. Like People don't seem to know. But have a look. See what you can find. I don't know. Get it for your friends. Get it for Christmas presents or whatever for people around you. Um, the Psychology of Secrets. And share this podcast, Heretics, around. Those are the two things that I'm asking you desperately to do. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.